CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet. With more than 2 million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we discuss how to make better decisions under conditions of uncertainty. We look at the worst call in the history of football, discuss examples from life, business, and even high-stakes poker to understand how to make the best possible decision in a world filled with unknowns. What exactly is a good decision? Is that different than a good outcome? We look at this key question and uncover the wisdom hidden in the reality that these two things might just be completely different. All this and more with our guest, Annie Duke. Do you need more time? Time for work? Time for thinking and reading? Time for the people in your life? Time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one -on -one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R -E to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we went deep on the science of personality. 
we looked at how we've moved way beyond the debate of nature versus nurture, examined the myth of authenticity and the danger of just being yourself, and why human well-being, aka success, depends on the sustainable pursuit of core projects in our lives. We explored the complex dance of self-improvement between the limitation of biological, social factors, and the identity of individuals, and looked at how much agency and control we really have in shaping our personalities and lives among all these different factors with our guest, Dr. Brian Little. If you want to really understand yourself and how to live a better life, listen to that episode. Now for our interview with Annie. Today, we have another unique guest on the show. Annie Duke. Annie is a professional decision strategist and former professional poker player. She's leveraged her expertise in the science of smart decision-making throughout her life and for two decades was one of the top poker players in the world. She's the author of the book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smart Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And after being granted the National Science Foundation Fellowship, she studied cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today. You know, as we kind of talked about in the pre-show a little bit, I am a poker player, so I'm familiar with you and, and some of your work. And, you know, I think the decision-making sort of thinking methodology that poker teaches is so valuable and so sort of applicable to a broader kind of sphere of life. And so I'd love to start out with kind of this idea that, that you talk about, which is sort of the difference between bad decisions and bad outcomes. Yeah, sure. So I think that one of the big problems that we have in life is trying to figure out the lessons that we're supposed to take from the way that things turn out. So we have this idea that you should be learning from experience, but that's actually really difficult because there's a lot of noise in the way that your outcomes relate to the actual quality of the decisions to lead up to them. So this very loose relationship between outcome quality and decision quality, which you can see really well in poker, right? I can play the best hand and I can actually play it very well. And on the turn of a card, because I don't have any control over the cards that come, I can lose. So I can make really good decisions and have a very poor outcome. Or I can play a really bad hand, actually play it pretty poorly. And because I get lucky in the cards that are still to come, I could actually win. So I could make really poor decisions and have a really good outcome. And this loose relationship actually creates a lot of problems for us. And what you see people do is that when they're evaluating outcomes out in the world, they tend to do this thing called resulting when they're looking at other people's results. And what resulting is, is tying too tightly the quality of the outcome to the quality of the decision. In other words, thinking that it's a reasonable thing for you to be able to work backwards from whether the outcome was good or bad to whether the decision was good or bad. In other words, thinking like if I win a hand of poker, I must have played it well. Or if you lose a hand of poker, you must have played it poorly. So if you want me to, there's, there's a really, really good example of that that I actually opened the book up with about Pete Carroll and the Super Bowl, if you want to go into that as an example. Yeah, I'd love to hear that example and dig into it. Okay. And then actually, I just posted today on Twitter about a very good example of that that we can get into that's like brand new research. So I think that might be fun to look at just really quickly. But so let me give you the sort of popular sports example of resulting. So it's the 2015 Super Bowl, Super Bowl 49. And the Seahawks 
are on the one yard line of the New England Patriots. It's second down on the one yard line, 26 seconds left in the whole game. And the Seahawks are down by four and they have one timeout. So obviously, if this if the Seahawks can score here uh, with a touchdown, they're going to win the game because, you know, it's going to there's not going to be time for the Patriots to be able to march back down the field. So everybody's expecting because it's second down and they've got the one timeout. So everybody's thinking, OK, they're going to hand it off to Marshawn Lynch, who's one of the best short running short yardage running backs in the history of the game. And he'll obviously just try to barrel through the Patriots line. And then if he can't do that, Pete Carroll will call a timeout. They'll hand it off to Marshawn Lynch again and, and give him two tries at the end zone. So that's what everybody kind of thinks is going to happen. And instead, what Pete Carroll does is something pretty surprising, which is he calls for a pass play. So he has Russell Wilson pass the ball. The ball is very famously intercepted in the end zone by Malcolm Butler. Obviously, that ends the game. And it's really interesting. You know, people can go onto YouTube and they can see the clip from the actual game. And I really recommend that you listen to Chris Collingsworth actually call this play. So after the the ball's intercepted, I mean, Chris Collingsworth is just, you know, flabbergasted and saying this is the worst call that he's ever seen in the Super Bowl. And the headlines the next day didn't disagree. Most of them declared, you know, USA Today the New York Times, the Washington Post, they were all saying this was the worst call in Super Bowl history. The Seattle Times, actually, which I think had more skin in the game, said it was the worst call in the history of all of football. So, you know, the question is, was this really a bad call? We know it was a really bad result, for sure. It was a very, very bad outcome. But, you know, was it a bad call? Well, Pete Carroll was asked about it, actually, on the Today Show. And I think they were trying to get him to say that it was a really bad call. And what he said instead was, well, I agree that it was the worst result of a call ever. And I think that that's an incredibly insightful comment by Pete Carroll, because when you actually look at the math um, and you can do this by uh, you could look at uh, Benjamin Morris over on 538 had pretty good analysis of this. Also, uh, Brian Butler, I think, over on Slate analyzed it as well, that the math actually looks pretty good for doing a pass play. I think the key piece of information to note is that if you looked at the 2015 season, the number of interceptions in that situation were zero. It's probably too small of a N. But if you looked over the past 15 seasons, which I think is generously aggregating the data because coverage has changed, but let's just go over the last 15 seasons just to get a lot of data, then the, the interception rate in that spot was only 2%. So, you know, the interception rate in that situation is going to be somewhere between zero and 2%, depending on what data you pull. And I think once you know that, it's a little bit easier to recognize that it was probably just a really unlucky outcome and not necessarily a a really, you know, a really bad decision, that it was just an unlucky, bad outcome. And I think that it's pretty easy to get there once you kind of imagine this. Imagine that Pete Carroll called that pass play and the ball was caught for a touchdown. Like, what do you think the headlines would have looked like? Probably most genius play in Super Bowl history. Yeah. I mean, I think that they would have been louding, you know, this is the kind of thinking that got him to the Super Bowl in the first place. You could imagine that, right? He out Belichick Belichick, who's known as a pretty creative coach. And we actually have an interesting example of this now, which is the Philly special. So for people who are familiar with this year's Super Bowl, the Philadelphia Eagles uh, on fourth down 
uh, on the one yard line of, again, the Patriots who are in the Super Bowl every year, as we know. They're up by three, the, the Eagles. And everybody's expecting Doug Peterson to call for a field goal and just take the easy three and go up for six uh, by six going into the second half. Um, and instead, he goes for not only goes for it on fourth, but runs a very unusual play called the Philly Special. And Nick Foles, the quarterback, ends up in the end zone catching the ball. And, you know, everybody talks about how it's an incredibly brilliant play. But, you know, if it had gotten dropped and the, and the Eagles had actually lost that game, you know that that's exactly where people would have been looking and talking about what a stupid decision it was by Doug Peterson not just to take the three points. So, you know, hopefully what you can feel from those examples is how much we emotionally get pulled around in the way that we evaluate the quality of our decisions based just on the quality of the outcome. Because obviously, whether that ball is caught or dropped on that one time in the end zone by the Seahawks does not have anything to do with whether the decision was good. In the same sense as, you know, if I go through a green light and I happen to get in an accident, that doesn't mean that going to a green light is a bad decision. And if I run a red light and I happen to get through safely, it doesn't mean that running red lights is a good decision either. You know, it's the same thing for Pete Carroll there. And this is a really, really, really big problem for decision making is that when we're trying to learn from our experience, we get so hung up on whether things turned out well or things turned out poorly in terms of whether we repeat the decision or change the way that we're doing things. You know, we end up with these weird reactions to the way that things turn out. And if we can't get past that, and if we can't get past resulting, it becomes very hard to become effective at learning. It's such a great example. And I love the idea of kind of the stoplights, because that really crystallizes it, I think, really clearly. And, you know, as somebody who, you know, plays poker, I obviously like a suck out is a great example of something like that. But for so many people, even a lot of people you see at the poker table, they get so focused on the result of the hand, as opposed to kind of what the decision-making process it was and how that kind of went into it. And so I think pulling it out and, and providing some context in, in sports and with other examples is a great way to shine light on the fact that it's so easy to get caught up in the result. And yet what really matters, because the only thing we can actually control is how do we make better decisions? Yeah. So there's a, there's been a couple of articles that have come out recently that are looking at this by really good economists and behavioral scientists. So One was looking at, and this is where you can see how these overreactions and underreactions can be really, really devastating based on a single result. So they were looking at the NBA. One group of researchers was looking at the NBA, and they were looking at cases where the team won by one point or lost by one point. So I I imagine you would agree with me that winning by one point or losing by one point is really mainly a matter of luck, that there's probably no difference in the level of play or the decision-making that goes into a one-point win or one-point loss. That's just variance. I mean, I assume we can just agree agree on that. And what they looked at was lineup changes. And what they found was that you were much, much more likely to get a lineup change after a a one-point loss than you were after a one-point win. And of course, in reality, there should be no difference between those two. So what you're getting is this big overreaction to a one-point loss, which is just based on the, the quality of the outcome, feeling like you need to change something now but you're not getting that same reaction to a one point win, even though statistically those would be the same. And then there actually, there was a paper that, that I was just looking at today 
from probably going to butcher his name, but Spiros, Macrodacus. And what he was looking at, he created a situation, like this was a where he was giving people data to evaluate. So it was quasi-experimental. So he was looking at a, how good agents were in soccer at evaluating talent. And it was in close misses for kicks. So where they either hit the post or it just went in. So again, th- these are going to be a matter of luck because you're very close to the post. And what they found was that agents were much more likely to view the player as talented when it was in, when it just went in versus when it hit the post. And that's very similar to the NBA situation. So these are cases where we know that the determining factor is mainly luck, and yet people are acting as if it's a, you know, the outcome is a big signal for skill. And in our own lives, we see this all the time. You know, when in our business lives or our personal lives, we have a bad outcome, we go and look for things that we can change. We think, oh, I've got to, you know, I need to go change something because I had this bad outcome, so I need to change strategy. And you get these very big overreactions to that. And when, when, then when things are going well, we think we're supposed to rinse and repeat. And we don't recognize that just as we should probably be patting ourselves on the back less because good outcomes can, you know, always going to have some luck element to them and sometimes a very big luck element to them. We should also probably be changing strategy and recriminating ourselves less when we have poor outcomes as well. So how do we start to combat that kind of emotional reaction or that kind of natural kind of gut reaction to think about the result as opposed to pulling back and evaluating the process? I'm really glad that you asked that question because that's the really big, like, okay, so here's the situation. There's a lot of noise. We know that our brains work this way. We know that we naturally try to make these connections. So my answer to you is not, well, now that you've learned about it, you're fine. That's not actually very helpful. So that's the first thing is that with any of these cognitive biases, having knowledge about the bias is not necessarily that helpful. And it's really just because this is the way our brains work. Like we're just sort of built with them and we can't take our brains online, offline and install new software. Like here we are. So first, let me give you the good news, which is that very small changes can have very big impacts. So you don't need to get that much better at this in order to have a big impact on on what the quality of the outcomes, you know, over your lifetime are going to be because it acts like compounding interest. So if you can get a few percentage points better at being more rational and evaluating your outcomes, for example, or overcoming confirmation bias or, you know, not succumbing to hindsight bias, whatever it might be, you're going to do a lot better in life. So that, that's the good news. Let me give you some hints about how to kind of deal with this. So hint number one is to think about, to sort of approach approach the world through the frame of want to bet. So really to think about, would I be willing to bet that this is why this happened? So for example, with the Pete Carroll thing, if you said, oh, I can't believe that that was the worst decision in Super Bowl history. And I said, well, do you want to bet on that? What would happen to you when I challenged you to that question? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think you start to, at least the way I would think about it is, you know, start evaluating other decisions, start looking at the probabilities of the different outcomes happening and that kind of stuff. And then it gets, you know, you start to think much more objectively and kind of quantitatively about it. Right. Because what that does, what that one bet does is it causes the uncertainty to bubble up to the surface. So if we think about why is it that outcomes and decisions like that relationship is hard to evaluate, 
there's two sources of uncertainty that cause that to be hard to evaluate. The first is luck, which we've discussed about, that there's just a lot of luck in the way that things turn out. The second is information asymmetry or hidden information that we don't know what Pete Carroll knows, for example, right? When we're trying to evaluate that, we don't know what coverages he saw, what, what kind of things he had practiced. And in fact, when we're actually watching that, it's not like we're living in the matrix and we can see those percentages or the decision tree like right in front of us. We don't know the math either. So we're, we're sort of guessing at it. So when I challenge you to want to bet, what it does is it reminds you that while you might have been so certain about what the connection about the quality of that outcome and the quality of the decision were, that there's, of course, uncertainty there from hidden information and luck. And when I say want to bet, what it does is it spurs you to start trying to, to examine the uncertainty. So it causes the uncertainty to bubble up to the surface in a really good way. And you start asking yourself questions like, well, you know, why do I think this? What research have I done? What's the math? What are the real probabilities? What does Annie know that I don't know, right? Why is she challenging me to this bet? So it causes you to think about what my perspective might be, which is really important because one of the best ways to get to be a good decision maker is not just to imagine things from your perspective, but try to imagine things from other people's perspective. And that's naturally because other people's perspectives offer valuable insight that you might not yourself have. So you start to question what my knowledge might be. And all of this causes you to be very, very information hungry. Because once I say want to bet and you acknowledge the uncertainty, because I've caused the uncertainty to come to the forefront, now what you want to do is start to uh, narrow down the uncertainty, to reduce uncertainty. And in order to do that, you have to start seeking out information and thinking about things from different perspectives. So that's the first step, is to really recognize this probabilistic relationship and to try to ask yourself as much as possible, like, would I be willing to bet on this? Because that allows that to come through. Now, but you remember I said to you, like, it's hard for us to get around our brains working this way. So the second thing that you is really, really helpful is to get other people involved in the process with you. Um, and that's because I think that in your own life, you've probably noticed that you're probably pretty good at recognizing when, when other people are biased, like what, what other people's biases are. Even if we're not so good at recognizing it ourselves, we seem to have kind of have a clearer view of when other people are maybe engaging in biased thinking. So we can use that to our advantage and we can get some people together and say, listen, I'm going to watch your back, and you're going to watch my back. But the key is that you want to do it through this idea of we're going to approach the world through thinking and bets. And what that means is that we're going to approach the world through the frame of trying to be accurate versus trying to be right. So let me explain what the difference between those two things are. So if we're engaging in betting, the person who's going to win is the person who has the most accurate representation of the objective truth. I assume you agree with that. Absolutely. Right. So that's what I mean by accurate, that you're trying to figure out what sort of objectively what the world is and sort of have the most accurate mental models, right? So we're accurately modeling the world. We're not just trying to prove that we're right. So we've heard a lot in the, the news about echo chambers, so when most people get together in a group, they sort of form a tribe whose goal is to prove that they are better than everybody else, right? So we kind of see this in politics, right? So the problem with that is that what ends up happening is that instead of de-biasing the individuals in the group, it actually causes more bias because 
I'm looking at, we're all looking at the world through trying just, just to agree that we're all smart and right. And so it's whatever our prior beliefs are, um, get affirmed. So you'll say something, you know, about politics and I'll be like, you're totally right. And the other side's an, you know, are a bunch of idiots. And then you're like, yeah. And then I'm like, yeah. And you're like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And it, obviously that's not very helpful. So when most of us are approaching the world, we're just trying to prove that we're right, that the things that we already believe are true. And people who think that way are going to lose in betting. And you, you probably know this from poker too, right? People who persist in their same beliefs about, you know, like, I mean, a good example would be there's some people who think you're always supposed to slow play aces, right? Like, meaning, you know, try to trap people with aces. Like, how does their lot? How do their lives go? Yeah, I think you're totally right. And, you know, I mean, poker, poker is such an unforgiving sort of crucible of learning, which is why I think it's such a great thinking tool. Because in poker, like there's there, no one, the game doesn't care if you persist in your own kind of ignorance or persist to try to be right instead of be correct, right? Or sort of try to be right instead of try to get to what's true. And so you keep getting punished over and over and over again, mercilessly until you change your thinking and start evaluating your own biases. Right. Or, or go broke. Exactly. Which is actually what happens to the majority of people, which is what's so telling, right? So the people who are successful are the ones who do the thing that you said. Right. But that's those people are very few and far between. So we're trying to get ourselves into that group of people. And it's funny. I mean, we talk at length about this on the show. And I've actually I wrote an article kind of at the beginning of this year called The Biggest Threat uh, Humans Face in 2018. And, and we'll throw that into the show notes if any listeners want to check it out. But it was basically all about this idea that people today live in a world where they don't care about sort of pursuing the truth. They only care about being validated and feeling like they're right. And so that's causing all kinds of kind of social and political and problematic issues. And, you know, the article sort of addresses, well, how do we move forward and how do we kind of advance as a civilization if if we're kind of slipping into this place of ignorance and we're losing kind of the pursuit and the grasp of what's actually true. Right. And that I think, you know, our podcast in some ways is kind of a project to try and teach people how to think and teach people what's important so that they can kind of take their own journeys towards finding the truth and, and kind of leveling up and being smarter, kind of better versions of themselves. Yeah, I completely agree. And you know, I mean, we're certainly seeing this in politics, right? Like the, the, the argument is, isn't about like, what's the best policy? It's about, are you on my side? So exactly. So, I mean, what that, that piece that you wrote obviously is in, totally germane to what we're, we're talking about right now. So if you get a group of people together, like what you're trying to do with this podcast, where you're saying, look, what we care about is not being right. What we care about is being accurate. And so I'm agreeing that because my goal is accuracy that I'm going to have to take some short-term pain sometimes. It means that sometimes I'm going to find out that something I believed is not actually accurate. Now, that's okay because my goal is accuracy. So what you're doing within the group is you're reinforcing this new mindset. The reason why we think, oh, I just want to be right is because it feels good to be right and feels bad to be wrong. And we're all just trying to feel good about ourselves. We're all just trying to feel like we're smart and we're valuable and our opinions are meaningful and, you know, we're good thinkers and all of those things. And if we have to say this opinion that I hold actually turns out I need to calibrate it because it's not exactly right in the moment that feels really bad to us. But if we're in with a really good group of people, we've decided that the goal is accuracy. What ends up happening is that the kinds of things that we start to feel good about shifts. So, for example, if I come up to you and I say, you know what, I think I was really wrong about this thing. Let me talk to you about it. 
you'll say, oh my God, that's so amazing that you changed your mind. And thank you so much for sharing that with me. Now what's happened is that because we have this commitment, I'm now being reinforced for the act of mind changing or the act of calibration or the act of mistake admitting or the act of giving credit to someone that maybe I don't want to give credit to because, for example, they're on the opposite side of the political aisle or whatever it might be. And you're reinforcing those behaviors for me. So now what happens is that the kinds of things that cause me to feel good about myself are things that actually move me toward the goal of accuracy. So I don't have to give up feeling good in the moment because I change what it is that makes me feel good. And the best thing that I could do, for example, in poker, if I walked up to, say, Eric Seidel, who's an amazing player and one of my mentors, if I walked up to him and I said, man, I think I really butchered this hand, that would get me so much more reinforcement than if I walked up to him and just said, oh, I got so unlucky, which is what most, that's the kind of talk that most people are reinforcing. Eric Seidel would have walked away from me. If I said, oh, I just got so unlucky because he didn't care about like, are you right or are you wrong? He cared about, are you getting better? Are you getting more accurate? Are you moving toward the North Star, your North Star? So now when I walked up to him and said, I think I really butchered this hand, which might feel really bad sort of, you know, at the outset, once he's become my mentor, that's what makes me feel good. So get a really good group of people together where you're committing to accuracy, you're going to hold each other accountable, you're going to listen to diverse viewpoints, you're going to be willing to, and here's a really important thing, you're going to be willing to sit in the middle of not saying something is 100% or 0% that, that Pete Carroll's call was bad or good, but holding those beliefs somewhere in the middle. Because once I say like, do you want to bet? What that does is it causes you to see, like, how sure am I of this? And what you realize is that you're very, very rarely 100% or 0% on anything. And it moves you to the middle where you're like, well, I'm like 60% sure that was a terrible call. So now when I start to walk through the math with you, instead of having to have a full on reversal from right to wrong, you get to go from like 60% to like 45%. You know, which, which isn't as big a deal because you're already sitting in a, in a comfort with uncertainty anyway. So that's the second step that's really important. So, so the first is really start thinking about want to bet and really start embracing uncertainty and understanding the uncertainty in this relationship. The second is get other people to help you. And the third, and, and I think this is the, the really kind of interesting one, is the best way to ensure that you're learning well from experience is to actually try to quarantine yourself from experience. So... I know that that sounds a little bit weird, but let me try to explain what I mean. When you have an outcome, good or bad, the quality of the outcome casts such a strong shadow over your ability to evaluate the decision quality that it's mostly better not to have the outcome at all. I mean, unless you actually have like, you know, 10,000 outcomes, unless you can flip a coin 10,000 times, you can run a Monte Carlo, which for Many, many decisions we can't. And most decisions, you know, the probabilities are relatively unknown. You're guessing at them. And we mostly don't get enough tries at the decision in order to have enough data to be able to say something across the aggregate, right? So we're usually dealing with just a handful of outcomes as we're trying to evaluate decisions. And we know that the outcome quality, it just casts this very big cognitive shadow. So what we have to do is try to figure out how to get out from under that cognitive shadow. And the way to do that is to kind of ignore the outcome 
and focus on the process of the decision in the first place. So there's, there's really three things that you can, there's four things you can do in order to really do this. Number one, as much as possible, evaluate decisions prior to getting the outcome. So, you know, for example, if you're thinking about a particular sales strategy, really do really good evaluation of that sales strategy in advance. Try to imagine what the outcomes of that strategy might be or particular tactics that you might be employing and what the outcomes of those particular tactics might be. Try to, when you're thinking about what those outcomes might be in advance, think about what the probabilities of those outcomes might be and actually write them down. And if don't be afraid to try to do that. Like people will say to me, well, I can't say what the probability is because I don't know what the exact answer is. But it's not school where it's like you have to say what, you know, if a coin, if I flip a coin, how often it will land heads? And we know the answer is 50%. For, for most things, you're going to be guessing. It's going to be a range. You're going to be like, I don't know. It's somewhere between, you know, 30 and 55% of the time. And that doesn't feel good to most people because it feels like a wrong answer. But it's not because it's better than not trying at all. And once you get that range on it, just like with the want to bet question, it causes you to try to really seek out the information that, that might allow you to narrow that range. So it makes you very information hungry, which is good because you're actually thinking probabilistically. So think about the outcomes, try to assign some probabilities to those outcomes. And now that helps you because it helps you to actually make a better decision in the moment prior to the outcome coming. And then once the outcome hits, because you've memorialized that process, you're less likely to overreact to a single outcome because you recognize that outcome as part of a set. So that's the first strategy is as much as possible, try to do this in advance. Now, there's some outcomes that you can't do in advance. So, for example, you know, from poker, I, I can't go through that process and memorialize all that stuff and work in a group to try to get to those scenarios when I'm making a decision at the poker table. I have 30 seconds. So pretty much all of my evaluation is occurring after the fact, ex post. Um, and so what do you do then once you already have the outcome, if we know that the outcome casts such a strong shadow? And there's three strategies for doing that. The first is, is if I'm working with you as a member of my decision pod to try to talk about an outcome, we'll talk about a, the quality of my decision. It's really good if I walk you through the decision only to the point that I have the question and not beyond. So I imagine you know from describing poker hands that this is actually really difficult to do, right? So when people are describing poker hands to you, how often is it when they're asking you a question that they don't describe the whole hand before they ask for your advice? Yeah, I think there's always like missing information. Where, what, what position were you in? What was the stack size? What was the stack size of your opponent? You know, what were the table dynamics? There's, there's so many kind of pieces of the puzzle that... Oftentimes, people just leave out huge factors that could, could meaningfully impact it. So I think that that's true. And how often is it that someone describes a hand to you where they have a question about the hand? And how often is it they don't tell you how the hand turned out? Like, don't they tell you that how the hand turned out like every single time? Yeah, that's right. And the best way to do and it would be to just, you. yeah, just don't right. say the outcome and then analyze whether they made the right decision or not. Right. Because think about it. Like, so here's the problem is that once I've told you the outcome, I've now infected you with the outcome. We know that there's this bad thing called resulting. I'm now going to make you result. So naturally, whether you're trying to or not, if I tell you that I won the hand, you're probably going to process my decision as better. And if I tell you that I lost the hand, you're going to process it as worse. So when I describe, for example, a poker hand to you, I might say like, 
okay, I was in first position. I'm going to give you all the right info, obviously. I, I was in first position and this was my stack size and this was my opponent's stack size. And, you know, here's what my hand was and here's what, how, you know, sort of whether I had been loose or tight or perceived as aggressive or whatever it is, here's, here's the perception of me. Here's how that person had been playing, you know, and I had this particular hand and I was trying to decide whether I should open the pot for a raise or fold. What do you think? And I stopped. Most people don't do that. Most people will move on and say, so I was trying to decide whether I should raise or fold. So I raised and then they did this and blah, blah, blah. And they described the whole hand and then they'll say to you, so what do you think of whether, whether I should have played the hand or not? And you might as well have not asked the question at that point. And that's true for infecting people with any kinds of beliefs. Like, for example, if you have a hiring decision and you have four people interview the, the potential candidate, if you allow those people to talk to each other before they come in and tell you their opinion, you might as well have had one person interview the candidate. You have to figure out how to quarantine people from these things that really, really are part of what causes bias so that we know, we know that my beliefs can cause bias for myself because I have a natural tendency to try to argue toward my own beliefs. Well, guess what? If I tell you my beliefs, I've now infected you with those. And we're going to now probably come to consensus and argue toward those beliefs. If, I, if you know the outcome of a decision, I've infected you with it. So when I'm talking to you and I'm trying to work with you, it's really good for me to not tell you what I believe and not tell you the outcome. That's a really good thing to do and only describe up to the point that I have the decision and try to quarantine you from, from the rest of the stuff. Another really interesting exercise that you can do that I think is super, super valuable, I kind of hinted at a second ago, which is take one group of people and describe the decision that you have, go past the decision point to the end, to the outcome, and tell them that the outcome was good. And then take another group of people, describe the exact same decision process, and tell them that the outcome was bad. And just look at what happens in terms of their evaluation of the decision process so that you can see how much the outcome drives the analysis of the decision, how much it biases the analysis of the decision. And then you can interpolate between the two. Because the people that you tell that the outcome was poor are going to point up the weaknesses in the decision process. And those, obviously, you would like to be able to see. Um, and the people that you tell the outcome was good to um, they'll point out the strengths in the decision process. And then you can kind of combine those two pieces of advice to try to get to a better answer about what the quality of the decision was. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to change gears a little bit, but kind of come back to a concept that I think underpins a lot of this thinking, which I love kind of the concept that you've talked and written about and this whole idea of sort of how poker and sort of broadly decision making is really about kind of trying to make decisions under conditions of uncertainty. And, you know, one of the, or, or as you sort of put it in the subtitle of the book, making decisions when you don't have all the facts. And I think one of the key components of that is this concept of expected value and how that kind of weighs our, our decision-making process. You know, we spend a lot of time on the show digging into the bias side and kind of the human side of it, but I'd love to get into, you know, as somebody who's who's been in the trenches and made a lot of these more kind of, this kind of quantitative probabilistic uh, sort of thinking, I'd love to to hear kind of you talk and, and share the idea of expected value and how that kind of weighs into what we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So again, you know, in terms of making decisions under conditions of uncertainty, really, we're talking about these two sources of uncertainty, which is hidden information and luck. So we've got those two pieces of the puzzle. What that means is that any given outcome, there's basically what it means is that there are more futures that are possible than the one that will actually happen, right? So for Pete Carroll, there was a future where the ball was fumbled. There was a future where the ball was intercepted. There was a future where the ball was just incomplete. There was a future where the ball was caught. So we can sort of think about all those different futures and then think about that only one of those could occur. In this particular case, it was the ball was intercepted, occurred, but each of those futures has a certain probability attached to them. And so this is true of anything. It's not, it's not true of things that we sort of naturally think of as quantitative, right? That's not the only place it's true. So we think of like 
for example, if we're talking about investing, right, that, oh, well, that's obviously very quantitative. So we're supposed to think about these probabilities and think about how we're supposed to calculate those out. But it's really true of anything that we do in life. So thinking in expected value is a way to hold in your head that the future is uncertain so that we don't have these really big overreactions and so that we can evaluate our outcomes in a more rational way in order to learn from experience. So let me just say, first of all, what thinking and expected value means. And then I'll give you an example from my own consulting of how I, I sort of wrap this into a group where probabilistic thinking would have been necessarily natural to them, but it, it really ended up improving the way that, that they work. So expected value is, is exactly this idea. Any future is most times the future is not 100% to turn out in a certain way. So there's a variety of different outcomes, and each of those outcomes has a probability of occurring some percentage of the time that it happens. And each of those outcomes has some sort of return that you might get from it. So we always want to think about that the return isn't all or nothing. The return is whatever the return is multiplied by the number of times that it will occur. So I'll give you a very simple example. If you tell me that when I flip heads, I'll win $100, that doesn't mean that I'm going to win $100. It means I'm going to win $100 when I hit flip heads. I'll flip heads 50% of the time. So that means that my, what am, I actually am expect, my expected, my expected value on the next flip is 50% times the 100 that you're going to give me. So it's actually $50, not $100. So how can we apply this to something that's less, you know, direct like coin flipping. So I was working, I, I work with a, a nonprofit called After School All Stars. And After School All Stars is a very big nonprofit. It's national, provides three hours of structured after school programming for over 70,000 inner city kids per day. Really great. So they're offering programs. Now, obviously, one of the things that's true of all nonprofits is that they have a big reliance on grants for funding. So I was working with them trying to help them to deal with their budgeting because their budgets were kind of all over the place. And also along with that, to try to understand, to help them understand when they should be hiring outside grant writers, which, you know, which obviously costs money and also how to sort of work their stack in terms of pri prioritizing grants. So what I asked them to do was to give me a list of all the, the grants that they were applying to that year and what each grant was worth. So what they gave me was a list of all the grants they were applying to and what the grant award amounts were. So that's what the potential award was. So I said, okay, that's great. But what I need to know is how much is, are each of these worth to me, to you? So you have to tell, you have to think about how often you're going to get them and then multiply that by the award amount to get it. That was a surprisingly hard thing. It took a few back and forth to get them to understand what I was asking for, because it's not a way that people normally think. And in that, what I got was, well, we can't know what percentage of the time we're going to get it. And I said, well, that's true. But do you agree that you're not going to get it 100% of the time? Yes. Do you agree you're not going to get it 0% of the time? Yes. Do you agree you're not 50-50? Yes. Okay. So we've gotten, kind of gotten the yes, no, and maybe out of there. So you're going to be better than anybody else, because you have the most experience within your organization and, and with these foundations of kind of guessing at what these the percentage of the time is. So you just have to take your best guess. 
So they started doing that and they took their best guess. And then I showed them, okay, so now you multiply it by the, the grant award amount. And that actually tells you how much the grant is worth. So they started doing that and it did a bunch of really good things for them. Number one, because they had to actually estimate the percentage in order to get to the expected value, it made them actually think more about what the actual probability of the, getting the grant was, which helps them make decisions under conditions of uncertainty because they start thinking about, well, really, what is the luck element and what is the skill element? What can I do to make this grant better? What information can I find? What can I understand about the grantor? And, and really start to reduce the information asymmetry in order to get those, those guesses to be better. So that, that's the first thing it did. The second thing it did, it revealed to them that some grants that they thought were very high value were actually not so high value. And some grants that they thought were kind of low value were not that low value. Um, so I can just give you an example. If you have a $100,000 grant that you're going to get 10% of the time, that is not worth as much as a $50,000 grant that you're going to get half the time. A $100,000 grant that you're going to get 10% of the time is 10% times 100, which means it's worth 10000 to the organization. A $50,000 grant that you're going to get half the time is 50,000 times 50%, which means it's worth 25,000. So it helped them to understand what the actual worth to the organization of the grants were. Now, when they were doing their budgeting, they weren't guessing so much because they were taking all of those expected values, all of those expectancy and putting that into their, their budgeting for the next fiscal year. So their budgeting was more on. So that was really good. And then after the fact, when they got or didn't get a grant, they were much less likely to overreact to it. So they were much less likely to start pointing fingers and blaming and say, I can't believe that you didn't get that. It helped them understand when they should hire an outside grant writer because they could understand if the hourly that they were going to have to pay the grant writer was enough to increase the percentage of getting the grant enough to make it worth their while, to make it worth the return on the investment. So they understood that. Um, and then the other thing that it did that was really wonderful was because their focus became, started getting really digging down into these better probability estimates, they started calling up the foundations. And in, instead of just calling the ones that they didn't get, which is what they used to do, they would call the ones they didn't get to ask what they could have done better, which is sort of our natural response. They started also talking to the, the grants, the people who gave them grants that they did get. And the reason why they were talking to those foundations, which they, which they didn't used to do, was because they really wanted to understand how much of it was the grant that I wrote, was I close? Was it a close call? Was it like one of these one point win versus one point losses? Or what, were, did I really clear the goalpost? Was I right in the center of the net? Because those are really important for understanding why you got the grant. Because if it, if it was a close call, obviously, you would want to treat that like you didn't get it so that you can improve going forward. And you want to include that in your future probability estimates. Most people don't do that because it's painful. We really like to feel that we're right and we did a good job and that our decision process was good. When we go to somebody where we got the grant and start probing around and they tell us, well, actually, you kind of got lucky, that doesn't feel good unless you have a focus on accuracy and not a focus on being right. And what thinking and expected value does is it naturally puts your focus on accuracy so that that's what you feel good about. You feel good about the call. So once we got all of that in their sort of development uh, chain, they ended up actually taking that way of thinking and expected value to programs as well and thinking about what the success rate of a particular program might be 
in this case, it would be how many kids would you serve? And then also with programming, there's some issues of if you give certain programs, you might get found, you might be more likely to get a grant. So they would think about what's the probability of success of program A versus program B if they have a choice between the two. And they're trying to think about how many kids would each program serve. And now they can come up with an expected value for how many kids are going to be well served from, you know, program A versus program B. So it doesn't just have to be about money when you're thinking about it. It can be a return on your happiness. For example, how much happiness will I get out of something? How much satisfaction in terms of health? Like how much will it affect my health if I make choice A or choice B? And what percent of the time do I think that that will actually work out? I think it's a really valuable way to start approaching the world that really improves your decision making and also um, goes a long way to helping with this resulting problem and helping with this kind of confirmation bias problem and this problem that we all like to affirm the things that we already believe and sort of think really well of ourselves. And we don't like to probe around into the things that could actually help us improve our decision making. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And it's good to see you know, kind of an application outside of the sort of really sort of clearly delineated world of poker. That's always something that I've tried to sort of zoom out and apply more broadly to, you know, business and, and personal context is the beauty of poker as kind of a, a learning laboratory for teaching some of these decision making concepts is that in many cases, you can kind of go and do the math after the fact and say, okay, well, you know, in fact, I was, this was a correct decision or this was an incorrect decision. Now, you know, you may not have perfect information in that case, but in many cases, you can kind of run the probabilities and say, okay, if there's, if they're going to fold 30% of the time, you know, this was a good all in or whatever. Whereas in business right. and life, it's so much harder to, to get, you know, to, to sort of cut through that fuzziness between decision and result and really figure out, okay, well, what was that? What actually was the correct decision? So part of that problem, I think, comes from the fact that in poker, it is actually possible to like run a Monte Carlo, right? So you can take a particular hand and you can kind of run it enough sometimes to see kind of what, how that might work out in the long run, that particular decision. Cause so you can think of hypotheticals that you can actually run and see how they'll go. I mean, poker ends in a cloud of you know, no information. A lot of the time you, you don't end up seeing the cards, but you, you've definitely played hands that are like that, or you can have some idea. For example, if you said you can do, you can do these counterfactuals where you can imagine if the person's going to fold 30% of the time or 40% of the time or 50% of the time or 20% of the time, and you can figure out what their folding rate would have to be in order to make it a winning decision. So you, there are ways to sort of explore in there that are more precise, but with a lot of decisions that we make, we don't have, we can't do that. And we, it, because the decision is somewhat unique and the probabilities are, are sort of more open and unknown. I think that that's where becoming really information hungry and having a really good group of people around you to offer you their perspectives as well becomes really important because even if your decision is unique to you, pieces of the decision are, are the kinds of decisions that other people have made. So we can kind of we can think about bringing other people into the process as a way to kind of run a Monte Carlo, because then they're going to bring their own experiences and their own evaluation of the process and their own sort of pieces of the puzzle um, and give their perspectives on your decision in a way that's going to help you to cobble together something that looks like the decision that you made so that you can narrow down. So you're not just guessing as much so that you can actually get some clarity on, you know, what's worked for other people or hasn't worked for other people, you know, what their view, what their perspective is, what weaknesses they might see, what stress points they might see that you wouldn't otherwise see. Because 
you know, for any decision you make, lots and lots of people are making a decision that's sort of like it. So if you can bring their experience to bear, it's a little bit like being able to run that. Well, if it, you know, if I had done this or if I had done this or if I had done this, how do I think it would have turned out? You might not be able to run it on a computer, but you can run it with other people. And I think you you made another really good point about that sort of how to apply this to more broad context in the sense that it doesn't have to be a perfect exact probability. You know, Charlie Munger from from Berkshire Hathaway has kind of the famous saying is, and I think Warren Buffett says the same thing, is that they would rather be roughly right than precisely wrong. And so the whole idea is, can you get a sense of you know, okay, we don't know the, and, and I think your nonprofit example really highlights this is like, we don't know if it's exactly a, a 35% chance of this sort of grant closing, but we know that it's between maybe 30 and 40%. And this is a rough estimate. And that can, even if it's not a perfect number and the probability is not perfect, so many people kind of get caught up on that need to have the exact probability when in reality, you can still make really effective decisions using this sort of lens of expected value, even without exactly precise probabilities. I would actually argue to that point that having a not trying at all, taking the choice of not trying because you think that you can't come up with an exact answer is really, really disastrous. Like if I had a choice between stabbing at an exact answer and not trying at all, I would take stabbing at an exact answer because at least I'm thinking about it, right? At least there, even though I, I should be thinking about a range, right? I should try to be roughly... I should try to be roughly wrong, as you said, right? Like I should try to come up, you know, I should recognize that it should be a rough estimate. But if I'm at least trying to come up with an exact answer, I'm trying. I'm recognizing that it is probabilistic in nature. And because I'm trying to come up with an exact answer, I'm at least looking for the information that would allow me to get there. Now, it's a much better step to your to your point, in, you know, the Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett statement to, to recognize that you're probably that you're actually going to have a rough estimate and that you have to be a, comfortable with that that it's okay that you have a rough estimate. And the fact that you can't get to an exact number like 56% doesn't mean that you're just supposed to say, well, screw it. I shouldn't even try because I can't, I don't know that two plus two is four. All I know is that two plus two is somewhere between three and five. Well, okay, because that's way better than not trying at all. Because if you don't try at all, the whole range is available. Then two plus two might be infinity, which we know is silly. So and by the way, we do this in math. Some, like if you think about it, we do this in math a lot, right? Like if I were to say to you, what's 156 times 243? And you said, whoa, I don't know. It's not off the top of my head. I could actually get you to think this way because I could say, well, do you think the answer is three? And of course, you'd say, well, no, that's ridiculous. I said, do you think the answer is 225 million? And you'd be like, no, of course not. Right. So I can start to get you in the right range. Like, do you think it's 100,000? No. Do you think it's 342? No. Right. And we can start to get down into that range where we're going to get somewhere, you know, in the 20,000 ish area. Right. Like we can kind of get ourselves to a place where we kind of recognize, well, it has to have this many zeros. And because I know what 100 times 200 is. Right. And that's sort of like you start to sort of think about the other things that you know that are easier problems that can apply to it. And I can now start to get you to range it down, even if I can't get you to exact. And in that case, the kinds of decisions that you'll make out of, I can't remember what the example I gave was, but now, but, um, but the kinds of ex things that you'll make out of decisions that you'll make around whatever that number are, are going to be a lot better. 
because you're not going to make be making decisions as if the number's three, and you're not going to make be making decisions as if the number's two hundred million. You're going to be in the right range, and that's going to get you a lot farther along. And I think that comes back to one of the things you talked about, you know, much earlier in the conversation, which is another really important point that we actually harp on a ton on the show, which is this idea that even these incremental kind of small improvements in your decision making cascade through everything that you do and and impact your life across a, a vast array of kind of arenas, because really fundamentally life is just a series of decision after decision after decision. So there's two things to think. I actually got asked this on a, in an interview once I said, well, like, I don't, how does improving your decisions really help if a lot of the decisions you make are one-timers? So uh, you can think about a one, well, hopefully one-timer would be like getting married. That would, you know, for, I think for the majority of people now it's a two-timer, but let's call that a one-time decision is like getting married. So how can it help you? Cause you're only doing it once. And, and you just answered that question, which is, well, yeah, but if you're improving the quality of your decisions, you make thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions, you know, throughout your life. So if you improve the quality of each of those decisions, even if the decisions might be different over over the course of your life, the, your outcomes are just going to be better because your decision quality is going to be better. Even if it's a decision that you only do once, that that's going to realize you can think about it as improving decision quality across a particular decision, if you can run the decision 10,000 times, over those 10,000 times, you'll get some, uh, you'll be able to realize the gain. But you could also think about it as more horizontal as opposed to vertical, that across all of your decisions, even though the decisions are somewhat different, if you're improving your decision quality, you'll, you'll see those gains start to start to realize. So I think that that's the first important thing to understand. The second important thing is that I think that this kind of goes back to what we were just saying about this idea of people are afraid to think about how often an outcome might occur because they think they can't be exact, that people think that anything less than perfection is somehow failure and they don't understand or they can't feel or they, they're, they don't really, they, it's hard for them to embrace the idea that no, if I just get a little bit better, it's okay, that I don't need to measure myself against perfection. So I don't need to think about, oh, am I getting it exactly at 56%? It's, am I not trying at all? Or I'd rather be at between 20 and 80% than not trying at all, because even that's better and it's going to get me a little bit of the way. So I like to give this example actually from poker, which is this, like if I am not working with a group and I'm not really trying to improve these kinds of things, I'm not really trying to de-bias, I'm not really trying to think about how to learn from my outcomes. I'm processing the world in the way that the, you know, I was sort of born into it with the, you know, not really trying to move my decision-making at all. Let's say that out of a hundred opportunities that come my way when I'm playing poker, maybe I, I catch five really good learning opportunities, right? So I'm missing 95% of the learning opportunities is my natural self and I'm catching five of them. So now let's say that I start to do this really great work. And I start to find some people that I can really deconstruct decisions with. And I start to think about how to be a better decision maker. And now let's say improve that output so that now I'm catching 10 opportunities to learn out of 100 that cross my path. I think that a lot of people look at that as a failure. They say, well, you're, you're missing 90% of the opportunities to learn. And I say, no, that's a tremendous success because new Annie is going to crush old Annie. Old Annie is only catching five and new Annie's catching 10. So I suppose you can look at it as, 
knew Annie's missing 90%, but that's not the way I look at it. I look at it as Annie just doubled her opportunities to learn. And obviously that version of Annie is going to crush in terms of her ability to win the old version of Annie who wasn't trying at all. So I think we really need to understand that the goal is to get the, you know, to make these small changes. Now, look, if you can make big changes, that's great. But I think that it's unrealistic. And I think that we think, oh, I'm going to get to this perfect state. It actually inhibits us from being able to move forward because we will view ourselves through that lens of failure. Whereas if we say any time that we do catch ourselves, any time that we catch ourselves being biased, we catch ourselves equating the quality of the outcome with the quality of decision or engaging in hindsight bias or I told you so or black and white thinking or not thinking probabilistically, and, and we catch it, and we reverse, that's a success. Even if we missed a whole bunch of stuff before that, if we catch something that we wouldn't have already seen, it really makes a difference. So I, I try to think about our, like, that we have this distribution, let's call it, you know, just a normal distribution of the quality of our decisions. And our goal is to get more of our decisions out at the right tail, out at the good end of the tail. And I think that doing this work, two things happens. One is you are more likely to end up with more decisions out at the right side of the tail. Not all of them, right? But you will. And then through this kind of training where you start to change what it is that you get re your reward from, right? Where you start to change getting your reward from be saying, wow, I really think I butchered this decision or I think I might have made a mistake or I think this other person, like I don't really like them, but I think I have to give them credit for this, you know, where that starts to be what you sort of get your high from, that will just slightly start to shift that distribution to the right, just a little bit. But that little bit is going to have huge returns for your whole life. I think that's such a critical point, this idea that, you know, changing, and you, you mentioned this very early on in our conversation, but like reorienting yourself to what makes you feel good is kind of this pursuit of truth and getting to what's true as opposed to proving yourself right has a, it's just a massive kind of fundamental impact across all of the results that you see in your life. That sort of mindset shift is that in normal social conversations, like if I'm just talking to somebody who's like isn't in my decision pot or whatever, and we're just like at dinner and you're just like have, or you're, you're at a cocktail party or something like that, the normal interaction is that if I express some sort of belief that is not true, that the other person generally won't correct. They won't offer the other piece of information. There's really kind of two reasons why that is. One is either if they really believe that you're wrong, they usually don't want you to feel bad, right? Because like you're at a cocktail party. Like, you know, they're not looking to get in an argument with you or whatever. So they don't really want to embarrass you. They don't want to make you feel bad. They don't want to get in an argument with you. So they usually hold the, the opinion to themselves. Or they might think that they're wrong and so they don't offer up their information because they don't want to be embarrassed. So you've, you've expressed something with great confidence and so now they, they question their own belief and so they, they won't actually offer up the information that you have. When you start to engage with people in the way that we're talking about where it's around accuracy and we have an agreement to accuracy, it reverses that because what you know is that if you don't tell me information that you have, that's what's actually doing harm to me. That it's not about like, oh, I might hurt her feelings because I'm telling her information that would have to cause her to calibrate her opinion. It's that you know that if I found out that you had information that would have helped me develop a more accurate view of the world and you didn't tell me it, that would be the harm that you would cause me. So that's this beautiful thing that really happens when you create a really productive decision pod. So kind of tying this up, for somebody who's listening to this conversation that wants to start to 
improve their decision making, start to implement some of the ideas we've talked about today, what would you sort of give them as as a piece of homework or kind of a starting step towards implementing some of these these processes and ideas? Well, obviously read my book. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest, the most important piece of homework is to go find some people who are looking to be more open-minded, to be more constructive about the way that they hear dissent, that really do seem to want to be better decision makers. And you can find them, you know, as coworkers or as friends, you know, maybe members of your own family and sit down and really write down an agreement with them. You know, say, we're going to be in this together and here's what we're agreeing to. You know, we're going to hold each other accountable to bias. We're going to try to not be defensive when um, people challenge our opinions. We're going to pat each other on the back for things that signal that we're trying to be accurate as opposed to trying to be right. We're going to be open-minded to diverse opinions and we're going to open ourselves up to people who disagree with us, right? Go look at your Twitter stream right now and see if you're only following people who have the same opinions with you or, or if you're really, really paying attention and following with an open mind people who disagree with you. Like, and go fix that. Go fix your social media if your social media is all on one side because you should be following people who disagree with you. That, because the opinions that disagree with you are actually the most valuable opinions for you. They're the ones that have the most to teach you because you already know why you think you're right. What's the most valuable is people who might point out to you why you might be wrong. Um, and you can't get that if you're only listening to voices that agree with you. So go fix that. And go find some people to do that work with you. So I would say that that would be piece of homework number one. Piece of homework number two would be to start listening in yourself. And you can also do this as a group exercise as well for the things that might come out of your mouth that signal that you're engaging in this kind of biased behavior. So, you know, anytime that you declare things with certainty, you know, using the words wrong or right saying I should have known, or you should have known, or I told you so, or why didn't I see that coming? In chapter six of the book, I've got a list of some of those kinds of things to get you started. But try to listen for those things that, that come out of your mouth that might get you to you know start thinking, well, I'm not really thinking in bad terror. I'm thinking with certainty. I'm thinking that I should have been able to see what was happening when obviously I couldn't. And really write those down and like pin those somewhere, like put those up on your wall or Something like that, so that when so that you're aware of those kinds of things that might come out of your mouth or those kinds of thoughts that might go through your head, so that when you have those thoughts, it will actually trigger you to go in and, and actually step back and really examine, well, is that true? Like and signals that maybe you should say, Well, would I bet on that? So when you say, like, oh, I should have known it was gonna turn out that way, and you know that that's on your list, that you step back and say, Well, well, wait, would I really bet on that? Like, would I bet that I should have known? so that you can go back and start to think about really what the decision quality was. And I think that that's a really useful exercise and you can do it with the group and you can share the list with the group so that they can point out when you're saying things like that. And then the third piece of homework that I would say is really try this thing of discussing a decision with one person and telling them that it turned out poorly and discussing a decision with another person and telling them it turned out well. And just listen for the differences because I think that that's one of the most eye-opening pieces of information that you can ever get. Like when you see how different the analysis is and make sure that when you're doing it, you're not talking about something that's really obvious, like running a red light or running a green light. Like, you know, make sure it's really like a, a more Pete Carroll kind of decision, you know, something about a strategy or a tactic that you applied or, you know, a tough decision that you had in your life and go talk to one person and say, Hey, 
And it, here it is. It turned out great. Like just make up a great outcome for it. And then with another person, make up a bad outcome and really just hear them. And I think that there's nothing more that will show you how much you need to really keep outcomes away from people when you're trying to get advice. And for listeners who want to dig in, learn more about you, read the book, et cetera, where can people find you and the book online? Sure. So if you go to AnnieDuke.com, everything is there. So my book is definitely there. You know, you can order there from whatever your preferred bookseller is. I really recommend, I also put out a newsletter every single Friday. And the newsletter, you know, goes through things that are sort of of the moment that apply to this kind of thinking. So, you know, as an example, for in this particular, in the newsletter that's going to be coming out tomorrow, I have a piece on a Bloomberg article where they declared these people had done, done a simulation of the World Cup where they had Germany as the most likely to win the World Cup. Obviously, there's a lot of teams. So Germany was 24%. So when Germany got knocked out, Bloomberg wrote an article about how the simulation was wrong. So I have usually about five pieces in, in, in the newsletter. For example, this week, that's one of the pieces, which is talking about how problematic that is. They, they, they declared the simulation wrong when the simulation literally said that three times out of four, Germany was going to lose. It just happened that Germany was the most likely. And this is part of how you can see out in the world, the way that this sort of need for uncertainty and the way that we are black and white thinkers instantiates um, in terms of our ability to really understand, you know, outcome quality and decision quality. So I'll take from, you know, that, for example, which was obviously news in the sports to research in behavioral economics, economic psychology, to politics, looking at how you apply to business, um, looking at how you apply these kinds of concepts. So if you want to subscribe to my newsletter, you can also go to AnnieDuke.com and there is links to archives of old newsletters so that you can read what I write before you decide to subscribe. And then if you do decide to subscribe, you'll get that every Friday. You can also go look at my foundation, which is howidecide.org. And what we do is try to bring these kinds of decision skills to youth with a special focus on inner city youth. So I hope people will explore that. Um, and then you can also follow me on Twitter at Annie Duke. Well, Annie, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all this wisdom about decision making and thinking more effectively. Uh, it was a really fascinating conversation and we're glad to have you on here. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand 
our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com. Sign up right at the homepage. Or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 